0: Hello, boys and girls. Welcome to this episode of Seeking Satya podcast. My guest today is Prabhu Pingali. He's a professor in the Charles H. Dyson School of Applied Economics and Management at Cornell University. He's the founding director of the Tata Cornell Institute for Agricultural and Nutrition. Prior to joining Cornell, he was the deputy director, Agricultural Development Division of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. He worked at the UN and also he was a member in the U.S. um, in fact, he is a member in the U.S. National Academy of Sciences. He's written numerous books, uh, thirteen to be specific, uh, and uh, has written plenty of articles—120 refereed da- journal articles and lots of book chapters on food policy. Uh, very excited to have you on the show, Prabhu. Thanks for joining.
1: Thanks, Mother. It's a great pleasure to be here with you.
0: Could you share a little bit about your background? Where where, where did you grow up, and how was it like?
1: Sure. Um, I was actually born in. Uh, a small village um, in Andhra Pradesh on the coast in the district called Krishna district and right by the Krishna river. And um, my father was a farmer and a medical doctor. And he provided free medical services to that village, but the surrounding 10 or so villages also depended on him for his medical, um, for the clinic, in the clinic. And so he would joke that he delivered every single baby in a 10-mile <laughs> radius in his, <laughs> during his 30, 40 years that he was uh, practicing medicine in the, wow. in the village. And so I grew up uh, in, in that village and seen that village transform itself from a desperately poor village to becoming increasingly prosperous. And, and that happened because of new rice technology that came in around the 19, I say 1965, 66, the time when I was about 10, 11 years old. And so we've seen this transformation happening from a village which didn't have enough food to eat. They were growing just one crop per year, getting around one ton per hectare of rice, barely enough to survive, to being able to grow two, three crops and getting four to five tons per crop. And so suddenly you saw this big transformation with Uh, Farmers being able to sell the majority of their grain and farm incomes rising. And with that, we saw, you know, children going off to school, to college. I'm proud Mm -hmm. to say my college was paid for by this Uh agriculture revolution that happened. And similarly for my siblings also. And, And that's the transformation we saw in this village. But when you look across the country, that transformation happened across the country in this time period, in the late 60s, 70s, and up to the 80s. And that's how the Indian middle class was formed. So that's been my roots. And, and I've been very proud of having been born and had my early childhood in that rural setting.
0: Wow, uh, that's um, I can see some of the like you said, roots of um, uh, what you've been working on. And I can maybe, if I may ask, like, was there any particular uh, childhood experience or incident or anything that influenced your career and your work?
1: So Madhav, you know, in the ch- during my childhood, you see these things, but you don't conceptualize <laughs> yeah. them. It, it doesn't crystallize as, oh, that's an important issue that I just learned about they just kind of stick in your mind. And it was much later when I was in college that I started to bring these together. And and as I was reading the literature, as I was reading about economic development and all that, then you say, oh, that's what really happened, right? (laughs) So so some images in my mind from those years was... um, Once this new technology came in, one of the biggest problems that farmers faced was, where do you put all this grain? Because there was so much grain coming in. And so there was sacks and sacks of grain all over. And I can uh, remember going into uh, farmer's homes and they'd have sacks of grains under their beds and (laughs) on the roof and everywhere because there was no place to put them. And and in those days, there wasn't a good road to the market, to the market town, which was about uh, 15 miles away. But there was a little canal that connected you into the town. And so I remember this line of boats that they stacked the grain on, and then the boats would be taken off to the market. And all that changed over the years. Over the years, we saw roads being built, a bridge over that uh, canal and uh, a dam across the river and electricity coming in. So all these changes happened over the next uh, decade or so. But those early years, they were very formative and In my mind, when I think back about economic development and the roots of the economic development that happened.
0: It's one of the things I had noticed as you talk about food systems in your book, you know, how it's not just about one thing there's it's a system it's a systems approach that you need to take to solve this problem and it's not just about growing crops it's about storage and it's about all those things that you actually saw as a child growing up literally like bags of you know rice under your bed and things like that I think those are probably very vivid memories from your childhood Uh, one of the things that people say of course is like we are what we eat right um
1: Absolutely.
0: Uh, and on that, actually, I was digging up a little bit on your uh, work. And then I did notice, I think, got through your blog, I went to uh, one of your blogs on the TCI website, and um, it was talking about how you sort of brought this orange fleshed sweet potatoes to India. Right. I, I'm not sure if it's a new thing that was brought into India, or was it something that existed and you brought that through TCI to a particular part of India?
1: So um, I can't take too much claim for all of that that happened. The, the concept of orange flesh sweet potato is um, a concept that was developed by a group called Harvest Plus. Harvest Plus is, uh, is a research group that works out of uh, uh, Washington, D.C. Um, and is based at Uh, the International Food Policy Research Institute. But they have research centers uh, in different parts of the world where they've been experimenting with different crops. The main role of this group is to to enhance grain and root crops, etc. by by improving their nutrient content. Uh. So improving iron content or zinc content or vitamins, Content so people who consume rice, for example, if you can increase the amount of um, zinc and iron in rice, then your your nutrient value of that rice increases also. So that's the concept behind it, and and they've been working in India quite a bit. There's um, uh, zinc fortified wheat out there that uh, is being experimented and being promoted and. Iron fortified rice, etc., that that are being worked on. But uh, sweet potato is not a major crop in India, right? It's it's something you eat as a snack or maybe a small vegetable, but it's not a staple. But in Africa, in East Africa, in Uganda, Tanzania, etc., sweet potato is a staple crop. That's what you, Um, that's the main dish. And then you may have other things around it. And so they had, but they were eating this white sweet potato, which doesn't have that many nutrients. So the idea was, how do you make this more nutritive? And that's when the concept of orange flesh sweet potato came in that has uh, higher levels of vitamin A. So through breeding processes, not biotechnology, just straight breeding processes, they were able to improve the sweet potatoes that were being used in Africa by enhancing the vitamin A content. And they've tested it, and they've shown that uh, that has really big impact on child health and child nutrition. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we tried to do was to say if you have that material and that material was being tested in India but wasn't promoted yet so we said can we go out into some villages and and test this out test to see how farmers would grow it and how they would consume it and we also created a way in which we can uh, we had a media program to train women in the village on how to cook it and make baby food from it and, wow. and also build the value chain for marketing the crop. And so nice. we worked in about 40 villages in, wow. um, in uh, the Maharaj Ganj area in Uttar Pradesh. And we had a really wonderful uh, NGO that we worked with um, it's called uh, GDS, Gramin Development Services. They were a phenomenal group. People and they really helped uh, promote this uh, crop across the region. And we had one of our PhD students, uh, uh, Katie Merkel, uh, who finished a PhD last year. She spent two years living in Maharaj Ganj and and docum uh, you know introduced the crop, documented all the changes that took place and. Worked through the whole thing, and that was her PhD thesis mm-hmm. work, and and it really took off in that area. And and there were other efforts going on simultaneously to to advocate for this crop. and And we just found out um, the government of UP has announced that they're going to introduce orange would sweet potato into their midday meal program in the schools. And so, you know, we were doing some of the, the academic side of the work in testing it out and making sure that from an agronomic point of view, but also from an economic point of view, it makes sense to grow it uh, and then look at the nutritive impacts of that. Um, and at the same time, there were other groups that were trying to advocate for government policy change in order to promote this growth. So it. It, th- it was quite a few different actors playing around this. So our, we, we had a role to play, but I don't want to <laughs> say that without us, nothing would have happened.
0: Um, one of the things that I know we'll cover in a little bit like the data that you're collecting through all these on uh, field studies and things like that uh, which is lacking quite a bit I guess in making the right choices or decisions but just on the consumer level or people actually when you talk about the nutrition aspect of it and that's the reason why you brought at least try to introduce this into the Pradesh this particular uh, vegetable um, is that something that um, is across the country now or is that still limited do you know like how how do you take something that you know works really well in particular location locally and try to distribute the same knowledge uh, across the country I guess that's one of the challenges you know what is nutritious but right maybe, right <laughs> how do you distribute the knowledge as well as the vegetable of course
1: <laughs> well government policy plays a big role uh, and government extension and government promotion plays a big role because, you know, we can only have ideas and say, here's something that will work. Yeah. But we don't have the scale to go nationwide on something like this. Okay. And that's why a lot of what we do is work in, uh, on helping governments think through the policy and advocate for change. So to give you an example, um, I talked about that rice varieties that transformed my village in the mm-hmm. 60s and 70s. That was not an accidental thing. That happened. That's, that happened because in the 60s and 70s, India was facing massive food deficit. I think. India was facing massive starvation. And India was depending on massive amounts of food aid coming from the US and other countries just to, to feed its population. Uh, it's something that people don't think about anymore, but that was the reality at that time. And that's when, um, you know, this new varieties of rice were being developed in the Philippines in the International Rice Research Institute. And there was a similar wheat variety being developed in Mexico. And so that's the Indian government at that time and the, the head of the Indian agriculture research system which was Dr. Swaminathan who is a very famous uh, plant breeder and uh, a really famous agriculturalist in India. He identified these varieties as the way in which India can come out of that. Ah, and, and therefore then got Indian government policy to, to promote these varieties and the extension system, really pushing them out and the credit system, input system, everything coming together. That then created the change. So by 1975, India was self-sufficient in food. Mm-hmm. So we went from being absolutely desperate mm-hmm. in 65 to self-sufficient in 75, 10-year period. And that changed the overall economy, because that surplus then kick-started economic growth and the movement of populations into urban India, the middle-class growth that happened, all of that came through that. So I tell you the story because government policy today in India still looks at agriculture as if we are still in 1960s. So they're still trying to address hunger.
0: (laughs) It's these problems.
1: (laughs) The hunger problem. But what we are saying is we've we've done very well on the hunger problem. Obviously, there's still hungry people. But it's not because of lack of enough food. It's because there's an access problem. But from a food supply point of view, we've got enough rice and enough wheat uh, to be able to feed our populations. What we don't have is more nutritious food. So we don't have enough supply of fresh vegetables, fruit, uh, milk, other dairy products, livestock products, etc. And so the challenge now is to go from just increasing rice and wheat supply to looking at a much more balanced food system. And and once we get government policy thinking in those terms, then we'll be able to do what we were so successful in doing in the past, which is, okay, how do you promote this more balanced food systems? Which regions are best for producing what types of crops? What's the market infrastructure? other infrastructure needed, the food safety systems that need to be in place, the value chains and connecting farmers to the markets and to the supermarket chains, et cetera. All of those then come in. But it's that paradigm shift that has to happen. And that's where I think one of the motivations for the book was to create that paradigm shift. And whenever I'm in in India and I talk with government officials or I give public lectures, et cetera, that's what I'm promoting.
0: One thing I wanted to touch before we jump into like talking a little bit more about your book, Uh, I wanted to talk uh, briefly about, uh, you know, between the time you grew up in India and then you moved on, you came to U.S., you did your PhD, I think in North Carolina State. Uh, uh, any uh, particular um, lessons or things that you would impart to others listeners either in terms of education teaching uh, and your early aspirations uh, as you know as you were growing up in the US quote unquote
1: so um, I came in uh, to the US in 1977 and um, Fairly early in terms of South, in, South Asian movement to the US, yep. there were a few. Oh, I think in North Carolina State, we had about 100 Indians at that time. <laughs> <laughs> today, That's it must, be, <laughs> today oh, it wow. must be like a few thousand. Yes. But, um, so it was a very different era. So at that time, we didn't have uh, the, you know, uh, the opportunity to have Indian communities to integrate into when we arrived so we were very much forced to to integrate into the. US community and and that that changed my thinking a lot that changed my lifestyle a lot. Um, mm-hmm. So I've went very quickly from a very Indian-oriented person to becoming much more international. It mm. helped the, in the rest of my career quite a bit. And because then you can, uh, you essentially have feet in two worlds. Right? Yeah. You, you still maintain your Indian roots. roots and still be able to be an international person. and. That early movement helped a lot in that respect. I think today, students coming in from India can essentially continue to be part of an Indian community Mm. in the U.S. We didn't have that luxury in those days. (laughs) I think that made a big, big difference in my life over time. And and that then allowed me to to think more broadly about where, where I want to be and I I was obviously happy being in the U.S., but I felt I wanted to go out and do some things outside the U.S. So we lived in the Philippines, we lived in Mexico, we lived in Rome, and then came back again to the U.S. So uh, that international experiences were really important Uh, for my own thinking about Mm. food, agriculture, and economic development. But our kids grew up in that environment. and So we have two daughters and our daughters went to school in the Philippines and in Mexico and in Rome. So they came out, you know, speaking multiple languages, knowing multiple cultures and, and it had a huge impact on their lives also.
0: Absolutely. Um, talking on that point of uh, having the exposure to multicultural, multi-regional. One of the things that I wanted to ask you was around, is there a place on on this planet or in any country where a system that you have in your mind or the vision that you have for a food systems approach is actually working really well? Like a model, you know what I mean? Like I, I look at US for example, I said, is US the model? I'm not sure, I mean, there is abundance of nutritious foods here, but you also know, I think one of the stats again, not, not everything on internet is true, but 42% of Americans are obese, which is like staggering 120, 30 million people, but it's not because they don't have the nutritious food. So I'm just curious, like if you saw in your experience, you know, living in different parts of the world, if there was something that actually is working in some place that we could, uh, you know, take from.
1: Yeah, that's a really important question. Um, If I had to to say, here's one place that comes close to what I think would be uh, ideal, I would say Thailand is probably as close as you get. Wow. Um, In terms of diversity of food, um, food supply that's available. Mm -hmm. And the number of food groups and also the the nutritive value. And and the reason I say that is Thailand came, uh, Thailand's agriculture development was very different from India, for example. Uh, Indian agriculture development was primarily because India was starving and they needed food immediately to meet hunger needs. Thailand was not in that situation. Thailand had a much lower population density. They were a major rice exporting country from the 1950s. Uh, they were expecting, exporting high quality rice, et cetera. But they didn't have this, this focus on rice or nothing. Uh Whereas India's focus and many of the other Asian countries' focus was, we need to get more rice and more wheat produced, Mm -hmm. whereas they didn't have that. And and because of that, as their rice productivity increased, um, the government of Thailand basically started to promote movement out of rice. So the government of Thailand started to promote vegetable production, fruit production, fish production, Hmm. uh, aquaculture in a big way, other livestock production systems. And and they focused on markets. And how do you get produce from farm to markets? And and really pushed commercialization, not commercialization as corporate Uh farming, but Small farmers being connected to markets as a commercialization process. So, if you look at Thailand today, um, it has some of the best nutrition outcomes in their population and, and significantly lower levels of obesity. Uh, and India now has very high levels of obesity. India has, you know, problems of undernutrition and overnutrition. You don't see that as much in Thailand as you do um, in India. So that's kind of a model. Some European countries also have a a very balanced food system now, but the reason I don't put them as an example is uh, it has come with huge amounts of government protection and government subsidy Mm -hmm. right? of different types. Um, I see. So one can buy the system too, right. government protection.
0: Let's maybe, you uh, want to jump into a little bit about the book that you written also sure. around, just about around books, really. I mean, it's such an interesting topic to me. Like uh, the book is called Transforming Food Systems for a Rising India. Um, and it's uh, anyone uh, listening, please definitely check it out. It's, it's a wonderful book it got so much um, content in terms of what are the systemic issues that need to be handled and so on. But we'll get into that a little bit. The One of the basic questions I had was around, is there a link um, between the cover image of the book and uh, women and women literacy? Because I was looking at the book and I couldn't help noticing there was no man. Let me no go ch-
1: find my book cover. <laughs> Love so to see
0: it. Okay. Um. The cover was all women and it was intriguing to me like there must be something about that i think you were trying to um i guess you're trying to express something through that image as well you know it's there's something about the women power in india that needs to i guess rise up or something
1: Well, um, yeah the cover was not accidental um it was um it was by the way this was an artist uh representation that we actually bought for the cover. But what we were looking for was a way in which to represent rural Mm -hmm. Indian uh, food systems and rural rural communities. And when you think about who is most involved in agriculture, uh, it's women right? Women do most of the work in agriculture, both on the production side, on the harvest, the post-harvest, and the food preparation side. So in, across that whole chain, the majority of the work that uh, in, in food and agriculture is done by women. And, and that's what we wanted to highlight. And in the book, we talk a lot about the role women play in agriculture and how Transforming food systems requires us to be focused on, on extension uh, services and providing knowledge to women mm-hmm. uh, rather than doing it as we've traditionally done, to men only. I mean, obviously, we should be looking at men also, but it has to be inclusive of women. Otherwise, you lose this ability to make that the sustainable change. So the, right. the cover actually reflects that quite well. Maybe we should just briefly
0: talk about the food systems approach. Like, what what are you trying to build a new food tech stack, if you will, at least in the tech, tech world, we talk about tech stacks like, oh, we're building this new mobile stack and this stack. And <laughs> um, is it fair to say that you're either trying to build or promote a, a better food system stack? Of some sorts and is that sort of a central piece of the book?
1: Um, We're trying to change the paradigm basically, Mm -hmm. we're trying to change the way people think about food and food systems and and agriculture Um, because um, you know if most middle-class Indian children don't think about food or agriculture. I mean, they think about food in terms of what yeah. you eat, what they eat, but <laughs> they don't really know where this food comes from. Right. And and that's a that's a big shame because much of middle class India's roots have higher-end rural areas. You know, like I'm the first generation out of my village. And and if you look at it, Uh, across India and and even among the Indian population living in the U.S., people of my generation would most probably have come from a village. So most Mm -hmm. of the middle class Indian population's children today are maybe one or two generations removed from the farm. But since there's no connection anymore, they don't really think about that about where the food comes from, the food systems, et cetera.
0: Comes from safe Right, way or... From supermarkets,
1: <laughs> right? And so one of the motivation was explaining this whole system and explaining how agriculture made the difference in overall growth of the economy. And it's because of agriculture growth that Punjab and Haryana and Tamil Nadu and Andhra have become so much more prosperous compared to a Bihar or yeah. Orissa or where agriculture productivity has been low, poverty continues to be high, etc. So, So all of those issues, at the same time, we wanted to explain that India is a country where, as I said before, you see people who are undernourished and people who are obese in the same country and with high levels of both. And why do you see that? Why do you see such high obesity and what can we do about it? And what's the role of getting a more balanced diet, a more nutritious diet of vegetables, fruit, et cetera, that can help address the problem of obesity? And so that was the other part of what we wanted to bring in. And then the third part was, I talked about all these regions which are being left behind, like Bihar, Orissa, et cetera. What's their future? And and Mm -hmm. in a sense, their future is not trying to produce more rice and wheat. Because they already tried that. It didn't work. But their future could be in producing more uh, dal's and you know pulses, pulses. etc., mm-hmm. or vegetables, mm-hmm. etc., and, and connecting them to urban markets. If you connect that to the middle class demand for these diverse foods, then you create a new growth opportunity. And so that's how we were thinking about this, and we tried to pull this together, but the challenge was to make it make all of this easily accessible and rather than talk in economies, which we normally do. Yeah. And, um, that was something we worked very hard on to make it a book that anybody could read and get the main story.
0: Got it. You definitely, I mean, you touched on it now, but also in the book and, um, where you do see a very clear divide between some states really prospering because of agricultural revolution and efficiencies, whereas others are not. One of the things I wanted to touch on was, what is the correlation between economic growth or opportunity and nutrition?
1: That's a great question. Um, One would presume that there is uh, that very good connection between growth and incomes and nutrition. Unfortunately, it breaks down. Um, it breaks down for a couple of reasons. One is um, the fairly cheap um, and easy access to processed foods. And especially with time pressure, um, you know, mm-hmm. processed foods are so much easier to cook and consume than fresh food. So that breaks down that connection. The other reason it breaks down is, while the demand for uh, fresh food rises with income, um, the supply doesn't really catch up. Because markets haven't developed fast enough. Uh, That market connections, the value chains haven't been built fast enough. So because of that, uh, it's created a bit of a market failure situation. And and that's part of the reason why we've seen India tripping from undernutrition to overnutrition. Now, with uh, the more recent changes that are happening in India, more exciting because there's much more awareness of health in India today than there was even 10 years ago. And there's much more awareness that, you know, we should eat millets and we should eat uh, pulses and and fresh food, mm. etc and and that new awareness I think will create new demands for better nutrition and and that may then result in some some reversal in this obesity trends.
0: We're taking on all the obesity uh, trends that the Western yeah. developed worlds have had for a while. Uh, You also talk, or at least not just talk, actually, you have done a lot of work around different up-and-coming fields of study uh, areas like agri-tech and uh, potentially urban farming or vertical farming, Um, plant-based meat. I think you do mention it in one of your talks uh, around beyond meat and things like that. Uh, You you touch on universal basic income, farm-to-market, and farm bills and things like that. I'm just curious if there was one thing that you had to pick from all these. You know, do you see anything in particular that actually stands out or all of them are pretty much big issues we need to be handling right now?
1: Oh, I, I think the big um, change, change agent that I think um, uh, we're looking at now and it'll become really important over the next decade is the role of um, ICT in agriculture the whole information technology, you know, um, smartphones are now ubiquitous, right? In in urban India, but they're also moving very rapidly into rural India. Now, as that happens, you go from smartphones to smart farming. And Uh the way you do smart farming is you begin to look at ways in which you make better decisions on on what to grow, what inputs to the use, field. what time yeah. to use those inputs and how much to use it at different points within your own uh, farm. So for example, in the U.S. farming, when the farmer is sitting on a tractor and he's applying fertilizer, his mm-hmm. tractor is connected with the GPS thing, which then tells him, and then Uh, His soil is completely mapped in terms of uh, the nutritive value of each little meter square. So as the tractor goes out, the GPS will connect up and to the soil characteristics of that plot where he's on. And it'll tell him what different combinations of fertilizer that has to be applied in that little plot like a one meter square. Oh. And you keep, I'm just kind of simplifying this. Uh. I mean, I don't, I understand yes. it at that level anyway. And so keep uh. doing that. And that then improves enormously the efficiency with which you apply fertilizer and and the long-term sustainability of that that land, because you're not over-fertilizing or under-fertilizing. You're just meeting the needs of the soil at that particular place in the right way. So that's one example of smart farming. Mm. But smart farming also is connected to water use. So, you know, with with nanotechnology, you can now have ways in which you you can have a little chip in in a plant or in the soil nearby, which can signal that the plant needs water now. Right, And that technology is here. It's used for grapes in New York State. Right here in where we live, in Ithaca, if you just drive down 10 miles from here, vineyards use this technology. And now, if we can use this on rice farming in India, well, that's going to be transferred. So that completely changes water use efficiency. So you're no longer talking about overwatering or underwatering in Having drought situations or flooding situations, you can create a mechanism that allows farmers to make decisions on better water use. That then helps you protect against groundwater depletion and all these other factors that come in. And and then connecting to markets, you know, once you have a smart farming system, information, market information comes into your cell phone you know the market prices today, you're able to then make a decision, should I go out and sell or not sell? And and now e-markets, electronic markets are coming up in a big way. So your cell phone can then connect into the electronic market. So the, these are all possible. And, and I think these are this is where we're going to go in the next decade. And, and India is fortunate because we've got a very strong ICT sector right (laughs) and we've got a very strong farming sector we have to marry the two and my my challenge is the people who work on ICT have no clue of farming (laughs) (laughs) and and some of them are your audience so maybe they'll hear me (laughs) and and of course the farmers are getting into attention people farmers are getting into smartphones (laughs) but they're using it for whatsapp messaging but we need to get beyond to something really where they can get into smart farming. That's that. I think yeah, that's the future. Yeah. I'm really excited about
0: that. It is exciting, actually. As you talking about the the nanometer and the efficiency around, you know, how much water to apply where. Uh, in my conversations with uh, Professor Katish Mantiram from MIT, uh, I, I recall him talking about that level of precision also, but he's working on his research and all the work he's doing at MIT is around actually producing water or whatever needs to be there, like fertilizer or chemicals that are needed right locally, as opposed to having to produce it in a far-off place and have to transport it and all that. And it's just so fascinating to hear you talk about it as well. That Like things are coming together. It's just, it's, um, it's a great, yeah, it looks very promising. Um, before I jump off from this book conversation, I wanted to touch briefly, uh, Prabhu, on just your thoughts on like, you know, book and a writing, writing book, you have written a few books, do you have any uh, practices or any uh, tips for people who want to improve writing? Um,
1: I'm not sure I have lots of great tips, but um, it's, it's always a challenge writing a book, because it requires pulling a whole set of things together. It's much, you know, writing a, a journal article is easy in a way because you've got 10, 15 pages and you just pick an idea and just work on that and, and you're done. Whereas in a book, you're trying to make a full story and, and get that full story across. And so what I've done in the past, pretty much with all of my books is I write that story up in like 10 pages before I start the book. I just write up what I think is the bottom line story.
0: So you have a beginning, middle, and an end in 10 pages. Yeah,
1: just like the full story in 10 pages. And and then then I say, okay, now how does that translate into chapters and put those chapters together and, and have little synopsis around that. That's how I've usually worked on the book. And that, of course, as you work on it, those 10 pages change over time, the first yeah. 10 pages, but at least it's the starting point. And quite often that 10 pages then become my introduction to the book. It, huh. Because then for uh, pretty much all my books if someone just reads that first chapter, they get a fairly good idea of what the book, the rest of the book is about. And that's been a good way, good model. But uh, to be frank, it takes a lot of effort. And and given that I've been doing so many different things, focusing on a book is very hard. So I've always worked with collaborators and I've worked Mm -hmm. with, Students, this this book, um, uh, my latest one. I worked with my postdoctoral fellows at Cornell, oh. and, and they were absolutely super. Just worked really hard on pulling this together. Um, it's always been collaborative effort with different people.
0: Do you have any particular practice, like some book authors would have? You write every day at a particular time. Doesn't matter. Um, um, you know, you get into the practice of writing or is that not something that obviously this is not your full-time job <laughs> you have fifteen other things right it's
1: on, so. um so i i it, i I like the fact that one could do that, but I've not been able to do it <laughs> uh, for me it's it's more like suddenly I just block off, off a couple of weeks and work on something and then uh ah, deep work. Then I think Carl
0: newport calls it. Uh, <laughs> Otherwise, yeah.
1: Yeah. it it doesn't work for me just, you know, a couple of hours each day, especially because I'm managing a team and I'm teaching and and then we're doing big research group programs in India. So I'm traveling a lot, except over the last year I haven't traveled, but otherwise we be on, be on the road. So I usually just block off a few weeks here and there and just work on, on my writing.
0: Wonderful. It makes sense to me. Deep work um, pays off. I heard I even read many people, very busy people like Bill Gates, I think blogs about it on his blog. Takes two weeks time off just to work on a particular idea. And that makes a lot of sense. Just on the note of books, do you have any particular books that have influenced you or that you've gifted or recommended to people?
1: Oh, um, I'll tell you about one book that influenced me a lot from my high school days, and still, oh, wow. still has, uh, <laughs> you know, it's something I still uh, think about. It's uh, George Orwell's Animal Farm. Oh, wow. <laughs> <Right>?
0: <laughs> Animal <laughs> Farm
1: is such an incredible book. Uh, you know, it's a story about animals taking over the farm from from humans, right? And then, hmm. then, creating this egalitarian society and with the pigs running the farm, running the whole government and um, and running the farm and everything. and But over time, the inequality starts coming in. And over time, you know, all pigs are equal, but some pigs are more equal. And <laughs> And you begin to see that change happening where animals are starting to become like humans. And the same reasons why they threw out the humans was the same things that were happening on the with the animals managing the farm. And when you look across society today, the parallels that you see for what was written in Animal Farm to what you see in society, anywhere in the U.S. in India, anywhere it's you see, yeah. and that's it was a transformative book for me in in my own thinking. Now, I, it was my high school literature paper book, so I had to English literature, paper. you know, we had to really know this by heart and. And do big essays on it. So, but that's something that stuck in my mind. More recently, I think uh, uh, Tom Friedman's book, uh, "The World is Flat," or the Earth is flat. The world, world is flat. Is flat. Uh, yeah, I, I think. think the world is way. flat, or Earth is flat. I forget which way it goes. Yeah, yeah. About how globalization has changed the world, and how globalization has made, you know, the world flat in a way. Is a really exceptional piece of work. Uh, it's it's much more reflective of the type of work that I do and you know of the, the things that I teach, but it's done in in a way that's so accessible. Yeah. I I really like
0: that TCI so Tata Kernel Tata, 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 Tata Cornell Institute. Cornell Initiative. You are the founding director, I believe, and uh, Ratan Tata from India, the businessman in Australia, is involved funding the initiative one of the questions i want to start out with was like uh, does ratan tata have any specific uh, interest in uh, food and agriculture or was it something else that caused the funding for this initiative so uh,
1: ratan tata is an alumnus of cornell uh, hmm. i forgot which year something in the 50s i think and he, but he studied architecture here at Cornell, and Ah. of course, he's a big industrialist and a well-known philanthropist. Uh, The Tata Trust is the largest philanthropy in India. Um, But Mr. Tata, uh, a few, uh, before I arrived here, I think around 2010 had made a gift to Cornell of um, $50 million. Um, $25 million for bringing Indian students from disadvantaged communities to be able to come to Cornell to study. And so full scholarship program, a really desirable scholarship for uh, Indian students. And I've met many of them, really great students that come in on that program. And the other $25 million was to set up this institute. And so, this uh, the Tata Conal Institute is set up with an endowment of that twenty five million. So we operate from the interest of the endowment, and then we raise other money also. And at one point, I, I, you know, I've met Mr. Tata several times, and I try to meet him every, once a year whenever I go to India. And very early on. Before I even had accepted to do this job, um, I met with him and I really was curious as to why the focus was on agriculture and nutrition. And and his answer was that, you know, India has done so well in being an IT giant, an industrial giant, an emerging economy, with really high growth rates, GDP growth rates, but we still continue to have stubbornly high levels of hunger, rural poverty, malnutrition, um, et cetera. And and we don't seem to be tackling those with the same urgency that we are, the other sense where we are excelling. And are there ways in which we can bring New knowledge, new technology, etc., to address these, these chronic problems that we are facing in India. So that's the kind of the reason behind setting up this institution. And I was at that time at the Gates Foundation. And mm-hmm. so when this opportunity came up, I felt this would be a really exciting thing to do. And so I came to Cornell in 2013 and help build this institute.
0: Excellent, got it, got it. I have two questions to follow up on that. One is um, the moonshot, if you will, like what is your moonshot for TCI? And like as a founding director, wh- where do you see this going?
1: TCI, by its mission, I think over the next decade, we should be producing several dozen high quality uh, professionals, who will be promoting better food systems for India and, and more broadly across the developing world. So our mission is to create that new manpower, new human power that'll, that'll bring agriculture and food back to the center of attention uh, that, that it's lacking. So it, today we already have a stream of people who've gone, gone back to India and who are now slowly um, establishing themselves and leading Indian universities. And we hope to continue that. So that's a big part of what we want to do. Second, bring in new technology, new knowledge to address these chronic problems as we talked about. And third, to really change the thinking within India on what's good food and agriculture policy and how do you make food and agriculture policy address the needs of better nutrition? That's our mission.
0: Awesome. And one follow-up, second follow-up question on that, like, what is the why for you? Like, why do you do this? Like, what, you know, what motivates you to wake up out of your bed every day and jump and well, go?
1: I've been working on food and agriculture systems uh, for the last 40 years. And this job helps me do two things. It helps me synthesize everything I have learned over the last four decades and look at where do we go from here in terms of thinking about um, better food systems into the future. And that motivates me a lot and and this the Transform, transforming food systems book is one way in which I've been able to do that and we have another book coming out over the next year which continues on this tradition uh, but second as I said my motivation is to to mentor young people in this in this field and to make it, make them see how exciting this area of
0: one last question if you were to write a message on a full moon that the whole world can see at some part of the day. What kind of a message would
1: you put on there? I think you said it for me. Food does not come from supermarkets.
0: (laughs) That's a beautiful way to say it. Uh, A nice way to end it. If people would love to reach out or learn more about your work, uh, where could they go?
1: They can go to TCI dot, Cornell dot O-R-G. or you can just Google Tata Cornell Institute. And can...
0: awesome. Thanks so much for doing. I really wish you all the best. Appreciate the
1: time. Thanks, Thanks for... Madam.